we ask, God, that you would make us receptive to your word, that by the Holy Spirit, you would make Jesus Christ uh, so beautiful in our, our eyes that nothing else really compares. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll read you a quote, and I don't know the original source of it. Many preachers have referenced it over the years, and, and perhaps you may have heard of it as well. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name, death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of you will be his sermon. Uh, death is the topic of our passage this morning, and every death preaches. And, and in these verses, Jesus is confronted with a pair of tragedies where multiple people die in horrific ways. But their deaths are supposed to preach a message to the living. And this is a text which is really designed to challenge our perspective on life and death and to make us view things perhaps in a way that we do not naturally view them. Now, in our context, Jesus has just rebuked the crowds in the previous verses for their lack of spiritual discernment, that they can somehow analyze the weather by telltale signs, and yet they refuse to weigh the evidence and understand the significance of eternal matters and of Jesus Christ being right in their midst. And within our context, uh, within our text, we find that there's also a spiritual deafness to death's preaching and this inability to process it the right way. Look with me in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. There's something about death that is supposed to preach repentance to the living. And with every tombstone as his pulpit, death proclaims to all who remain alive that now is the right time to get right with God. And there's an urgency to Jesus' words here. But this is not how we usually and generally respond to death. We usually ask questions like, how did it happen? Why did it happen? Were they sick? Was it cancer? Was it an accident? Is this a mental health kind of situation? Did the person leave a family behind? And so on and so forth. What are the details surrounding death? Any celebrity in the news? What? Why? How? And we're clicking the links because we want to know these details. We want to know the circumstances and the particulars and continually discuss those things without ever putting a thought to our own latter end. J.C. Ryle observes this about humanity, how much more ready people are to talk of the deaths of others than their own deaths. I mean, we talk and talk about others without ever bringing it home to ourselves, contemplating it with any kind of seriousness at all. 
Never mind that death's record is undefeated, except in a handful of miraculous accounts. But so it is that people will usually respond to death, not with repentance, not with a numbering of our own days, but with discussions about the cause and our own avoidance of it. And that's what's happening here. Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, had some Galileans killed. For whatever political, personal reason he may have had, it's not explicitly spelled out in our passage, nor in any historical document that is in existence today. We don't know why Pilate did this. But Roman powers unjustly killing their subjects isn't entirely unheard of. And these Galileans didn't just die. They actually died in the process of offering their worship to God, to Yahweh. I mean, this is where people would think that they are safest, in the midst of the temple, offering their sacrifices to God in accordance with the Scripture. This is like dying at church mid-communion. And their deaths are so gory that the blood of their slain bodies mixed with the blood of their slain offerings. And within the first century Jewish mindset, the thought process would be, wow, those guys must have done something really, really bad, that they would be massacred in the place of worship. How evil does one have to be to die like that, that God would take their lives while they were offering to him? Right, Jesus? Right? Because righteous people don't die like that. Only the wicked die like that because God is just. And there's this weird comfort that much of the crowd would feel if Jesus were to say, yes, you're right. Their gory deaths are because of their gory sins. And so you all can relax because you all are not that bad at all. But Jesus doesn't say that. What Jesus does instead is bring up another mass casualty event, not a murder, not in the place of worship, no blood mixed with sacrifices or anything like that. But 18 people die because a tower falls on top of them. No warning, no nothing. Some commentators think that this tower is a tower built for protection, strategic place for the Roman defense network where guards could be stationed to keep watch over the people. We don't know. But if true... The similarities in these two mass casualty events is that people were killed in the very places where they felt most safe and most secure and most distanced from death itself. And honestly, this is how a lot of people die when they least expect it. And this is eerily what the crowds are trying to do in their response to these kinds of events, that they're trying to distance themselves from death by separating themselves from the dead because those people deserve it and we do not as long as we live in some kind of moral, spiritual, above average kind of way. What happened to them cannot and will not happen to me because I am generally a good person. This is nothing unique to the first century. Uh, people today call it karma and other names that what you get is what you deserve. And for the people in this crowd, their comfort is I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a religious Jewish person. I'm spiritual. Therefore, I am safe and I can discuss death, other people's, and it makes me feel like I have actually contemplated death, even though I haven't without any kind of real effort. And so these crowds are dwelling upon the wrong thing. You know, we received a, a miniature foosball table as a gift a couple of years ago. And the boys, especially, they want to beat their dad at everything, almost everything. Chess, basketball, video games, everything. They want to beat me. But they can't beat me. <laughs> and when we play foosball, I have a, a secret trick. All I have to do is turn the TV on. That's it. <laughs> turn the TV on, and their eyes are no longer capable of being fixated on the game. But my back is to the TV, and I'm, I'm thoroughly focused on not losing 
any game to my kids in my midlife existence. You focus on that, I'll focus on this and, and, and what's happening here. And what always happens when we're confronted by death, we don't hear death's preaching. We don't feel his sermon coming from behind that tombstone as his pulpit that I'm coming for you as well. We don't ask ourselves questions like, am I ready to go? Are my sins really forgiven? Am I right with God? Am I worldly-minded more than I am heavenly-minded? Is the way that I'm living today uh, preparing me for what is inevitably going to come? Is the way that I'm living today preparing my family for the afterlife? Am I fixated on things that really matter eternally? Or am I fixated on things that won't really matter at all in a thousand years from today? Because we're distracted with our focus on things that don't really matter at all, like how and why and what happened. And with death occurring every day, I mean, famous people died this past week. And it's front page news for a couple of days until the next one dies. But somehow with death occurring every day, that familiarity with it makes us deaf to his preaching. Like familiarity can make us deaf to all kinds of preaching. And Jesus is clanging the pots and the pans together. Don't look at the TV. Keep your head in the game. When you think about the deaths of the Galileans, as tragic as they are, the real message is, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When you think of the 18 tower casualties, as tragic as they are, the real message is for those who are still living. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Don't ask yourselves the wrong questions. We have to be asking of ourselves the right ones. Don't feel safe as if death isn't coming for you. And don't create that distance from those who have already passed. Now, are there answers to why some people die and some people don't? Of course. God has a purpose in everything. And we often do not know why things happen the way that they do. Does God sometimes judge people with physical death? Yes. And Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they die when they lie to the Holy Spirit in the early foundations of the church. Sodom and Gomorrah, cities filled with casualties because of massive iniquity in Genesis 19. Herod in Acts 12, 23, he did not give God the glory he was due, and Herod was struck down immediately. There is no denying that sometimes God will judge and end the life of a person for a particular sinful reason. But Ananias and Sapphira happened the one time. And a lot of people lie to the Holy Spirit, and they don't die immediately. Same with Herod, even though most people today do not give glory, uh, God the glory he's due. Sodom and Gomorrah happened once, and there are parts of current culture which are not way, way far off from similar iniquity. There's no fire coming from the skies immediately, and so we can never know, nor are we called to guess, what is the reason when someone dies here or there? What Jesus is calling us to know and not guess at is the status of our own souls with him prior to the time where we will stand before him. This is each of ours most pressing need. There's nothing more important to you today than making sure of what Jesus wants you to be sure of. And we see this because there are many things that Jesus could have spoken about concerning these tragedies. He could have talked about God's sovereignty in life and death. He could have talked about Roman politics and a coming kingdom that is not like any earthly one. Jesus could have spoken about when and when not to submit to the governing authorities when they act in a way that is ungodly. How to be a faithful believer in a thoroughly unbelieving culture. And all of these things are important spiritual topics of discussion. But for Jesus, 
All of that's secondary. The primary thing we each and we all need to be dwelling on in the face of death is the status of each one of our own souls. And throughout the last few months, I mean, I don't know that any of us have ever met anyone with the clarity and urgency and gravity of Jesus. The status of where you're at with God is everything. That judgment is coming, that money, barn houses, nothing. Faithfulness is all hypocrisy, deadlier than any kind of disease. There's this urgency, gravity, earnestness about Jesus and the tone in our text. He doesn't shift or skip a beat at all as he's confronted by a pair of tragedies where multiple people die in horrific ways and people are looking for answers. And the only answer he gives to the people dying, to people dying is you will too. Have you come to terms with God yet? The only answer that Jesus decides to give them has nothing to do with their line of thinking at all. But instead is, you better get right with God as your supreme priority. He didn't say, stay away from towers, the same builder likely built them all. When Pilate is upset, steer clear, come back to the temple at a different time if you see more Roman soldiers than usual. No, their urgency, more than physical life and well-being, more than where you're going to live, what you're going to do, who you're going to marry, what job field you should enter, if retirement's going to be okay. Now, the question for each of us, every single time a death occurs, is are you prepared for it as well? And are you prepared for what comes after? You know, there are younger uh, people in this room as well. A little boy got swept out into the ocean this past week in California. And this is not a time for young people to think, I can contemplate spiritual things when I get older. Young people die too. Now, when Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, what Jesus is doing is he's leveling the playing field. He doesn't say only those guys need to repent, and you guys don't have to. No, no, we all do. Because while there may be worse people in the world and better people in the world, relatively speaking, none are truly good or holy or righteous. And just because there is the existence of some who are super sinful, it doesn't make the others innocent. What Jesus is saying here is that we are all sinful and death should not shock us at all because no one truly is guilt-free. And this is the Bible's repeated testimony about humanity, even in just one book, Romans, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all. That's everyone. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. What Jesus is trying to do is recalibrate the crowds and recalibrate us as well that the shock and the astonishment should not be that people do die, even in the gruesome deaths like the Galileans in the 18. But the shock and the astonishment should be that the rest of us somehow continue to live when we each deserve death and death eternal. What is amazing is not that people die, but what is amazing is that people are given new days of life even when they live those days in abject rebellion against their maker, creator, their Lord, and God. What Jesus is saying is that there are no innocent human beings at all. Everyone, we all need to repent. And God has given to those alive the time to do just that which would have sounded crazy in the first century uh, context of Jewish self-righteousness, and it sounds crazy in today's context of self-righteousness and victimization. But brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is, is that we all deserve judgment, we all deserve to perish, 
And that is the first part of understanding the gospel itself. When we see other people die and perish eternally after that, that is not the time for us to create distance from themselves to us, but it is a time to be reminded that if we were to really get what we each deserve, those tragedies should have happened to me, but by the grace of God, they haven't. God has given me more time, and we shouldn't spurn that time. The death of others is always an opportunity for us to reflect upon our own spiritual status, not to rate or to judge other people, not to comment on what God is doing to this group or to that one and this nation and that one, what this person needs to do and how Jesus is really talking to that person over there. No, we ought to be thinking about what we need to do and how we need to respond. In light of this momentary and fleeting life, death preaches to each one of us individually. And we each need to heed his message accordingly. Now, notice that the way to get right with God is not to come up with a list of resolutions, new spiritual disciplines, causes to give to, and hours to volunteer. Uh, None of us can get right with God by earning it with our own merit and our own deeds, or by turning over a new light leaf. No, repentance begins by understanding our own sin. The word repentance literally means a change of mind. But it's not merely an action of only the mind. It begins with an understanding of our own sin, that there's something wrong right here. And I can't blame that on anybody else. I can't excuse that because of past trauma, although that might help me understand why I act the way that I act. It doesn't excuse how I act when I act. And it's not just uh, enough to just say we have something wrong. We have to hate that which is wrong and come before God in confession. I hate being at odds with you. I hate doing the things that displease you. I want you, and I want the holiness by which without no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. I want a different life than the one that I've been living. And by the power of God, you live a different life with him at the center rather than yourself. This is a new birth, and it begins in repentance. What is repentance? This is a Westminster Shorter Catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Sense of sin, hatred over sin, turning from it, turning to God, apprehending his mercy in Christ with new obedience, real life change. Tied to this repentance is this faith in Jesus Christ. Because somebody has to pay for my sin. Somebody has to free me from this slavery. Somebody has to cleanse me and wash me and make me new. Somebody else that is not me has to do it because I am utterly incapable of doing it. And the person who is telling the people and who may be sounding all mean in this moment in the wake of such tragedies is not really mean at all. But he's full of love, the kind of love that can tell it to the people straight without sugarcoating it, that your souls are in jeopardy, and if you were to die like they died, you would be in trouble because you are at odds with God. But I have come. Jesus has come, born in a manger, truly human, truly divine, to live the life that we haven't lived. Utterly sin-free, totally righteously, every temptation that has tripped every single one of us up didn't trip Jesus up. 
although he was severely tempted to fall in the same place as you have. And if there's anyone who has not earned the wages of sin, it is Jesus, and he has lived this life not to lord it over us. You should have lived like me, but you didn't. I proved that it could be done. No, I lived this life to die in your place, to face the wrath, the eternal death that you have each earned because I love you, I love you, and I'm going to rise from the grave for you to defeat the power of both sin and death so that neither will reign over you any longer, and I'm coming back for you soon so that you may enjoy the fullness of life and life eternal. The gospel message is a message of the free gift of salvation through the work of someone else, Jesus Christ, and not our own work, but it is that this free gift of salvation is held out only for those who are repentant. Now, how do we know if we've been repentant? Listen to J.C. Ryle just to layer it on again. Let us leave the subject with the solemn inquiry, have we ourselves repented? We live in a Christian land. We belong to a Christian church. We have Christian meetings and means of grace. We have heard of repentance with the hearing of the ear, and that hundreds of times. But have we ever repented? Do we really know our own sinfulness? Do our sins cause us any sorrow? Have we cried to God about our sins and sought forgiveness at the throne of grace? Have we ceased to do evil and broken off from our sinful habits? Do we sincerely and heartily hate everything that is evil? These are serious questions. They deserve serious consideration. The subject before us is no light matter. Nothing less than life, eternal life, is at stake. If we die impenitent and without a new heart, we had better never had been born. And so Jesus is saying in the midst of death's preaching that we each and we all deserve to perish, and we each and we all therefore need to repent. And every single death proclaims to us that our time is coming soon as well and that we must be prepared for it by getting right with God. Perhaps in your small groups, you can be wisely specific in areas where you need to come to repentance and ask for accountability in those very areas. Verse 6, we continue. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Jesus impresses upon the crowds another layer of urgency in getting right with God, that although the Lord is very patient, his patience is not going to last forever. And this parable is really a picture of Israel, the historic people of God, the chosen nation, uh, who is really currently facing a turning point with Yahweh himself. They're the fig tree that has no fruit. They look like they are something, they smell like they're something, but they're not really something. Farmers don't plant trees because trees look nice. Farmers plant trees because they want fruit. Trees that are all show and no go that look like something but are not are no interest to the farmer who planted them. And religious people who are all show and no go that look like believers and sing like believers but don't actually live like believers are on borrowed time. 
And this particular fig tree has been given ample opportunity to respond to everything the farmer has done to provide the most healthy environment to bear that fruit. But it hasn't. Three years. That could correspond to the years that Jesus is engaging in public ministry. Three years, no response. And the man, rightfully so, wants to cut the tree down. All it's doing is using up ground. It's just taking up space. But the vine dresser pleads for one more year. This is mediation. This is a picture of this ongoing patience of God. And this vine dresser is going to do even more for this tree. Make the soil around it better, more conducive for fruit, more fertilizer. Make this even more of an environment for this fig tree to thrive. And if that doesn't work, well, there's nothing left to do. We've done everything for it. There's nothing left to do but cut it down. This is Israel's prime opportunity to repent. They have the scriptures. They have the heritage. They have the covenants all the way back to Abraham. They have the prophecies. And God has given them providentially Roman occupation, which makes them long for a better and higher kingdom, long for a Messiah and a Christ. And they've been given the son, Jesus, who has demonstrated over and over through miraculous proof after proof, authoritative preaching, storm still, thousands fed, demons cast out, the dead raised, the blind seen, scripture fulfilled. And there's no response. Other than curiosity, for sure. But ultimately rejection, not repentance. And their judgment is coming. And by the grace of God, Jesus is giving to them this very stern warning, clanging the pots and banging the bands. But tragically it is that Israel will not respond even with very clear and urgent warnings, even with the Son of God and God himself pleading with them, even with people dying all around them and entering into eternity unprepared, the people will still not respond. They will crucify the Lord, and yet even then, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Brothers and sisters, of course, this is not merely for Israel alone. We have the Scripture We have the testimonies. We have the transformed lives of those around us. We have the preaching of the word. We have the church. We have the Lord's table. We have baptism. We have the cross, the resurrection. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus Christ revealed. We have a Father who providentially has placed in each of our lives thousands of pointers to himself if we would but just look. And the urgency is such for all who sit under God's word and refuse to respond, refuse to repent, refuse to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. Repentance and turning to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, Acts 26, 20. We have every kind of spiritual privilege because what God is doing is digging the soil around us fertilizing it, and providing every opportunity for each of us to respond. And if we do not, it is not because we haven't been given enough. It's because we're spurning this privilege and responsibility that we can hear Jesus pleading to each of us in his word, in the scripture, that we ought to embrace these words and embrace him and take up our cross and follow him. You know, I think for most of us, We know, if we just took a couple of minutes, we know those areas in our lives where we need to respond. And the only thing left for us to do is respond with repentance and with faith to come to Christ, to turn to him who loves us so. Now, if you're new here, and this message is sounding very fire and brimstony, turn or burn, uh, 
And you may be turned off by the caricatures of those guys holding blood red signs with anger in their eyes. Um, Jesus is urgent. We can't ignore the urgency of these texts by finding the worst examples of Christianity so that we can dismiss all of Christianity. Because if it is true that death is inescapable and heaven and hell are real, then there really is nothing more urgent because we do not know when our time's going to come. That he, of course, out of love, will impel us to contemplate what is inevitable with more intention than we naturally do. If heaven and hell are real and death is imminent and sin is deadly, do you really want a Jesus who preaches in the face of math's death three ways to make lemonade out of these lemons? Five principles to expand your business and make more meaningful friendships? That's not what you want. Martin Luther says this, sinners run backward toward an open grave, unable to face death, but inevitably moving straight at it, trying to put it out of sight and out of mind with any diversion, and yet shuffling in reverse until the inevitable meeting occurs. Then the sudden tumble down. It is love to bang the pots and the pans. It takes courage and boldness and bravery to give to people what they may view as unpopular naturally to them. Uh, John Piper, most people think very little about what matters most, think very much about what matters little. Wise people are people who have proportion in their lives. What matters most, they are most concerned with, and what matters least, they are least concerned with. Death is huge and death is sure, and God is calling each of us here to think about it and get serious about it in a way that fits with how momentous death is. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, these texts are heavy and they're confrontational. And we ask, God, only by your spirit can we love texts like these. Only by your working, Lord, can can your word uh, here bear fruit in each of our lives. We thank you for Jesus and his boldness. Uh, his alertness, his ability to discern the human heart, having one himself. Uh, we thank you for Jesus that by his grace and mercy that, that he came to die for sinners rather than condemn them. And I pray that by the Spirit you would move us to apprehend that mercy, that you would give us uh, eyes to see our hearts, uh, that you would sanctify us in your truth, and that you would make us a people of your own possession that we might totally and wholly live our lives unto you in joy. Uh, Help us, God, to come to you more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.